0: Good morning, Pinion Hills Community Church on this Labor Day weekend. Turn to somebody next to you, give them a high five and say, hey, you get a gold star for being at church Labor Day weekend. (laughs) For those of you who are in the mountains or in the river or the lakes and the streams or at the lake and you're watching the live stream right now, there's all these people here live. Come on, check your priorities. Check your heart. (laughs) Just kidding. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Thank you for joining us on Labor Day weekend. My name is Matt. Great to have you here with us as we're continuing on in this series called Reset. Uh, I'm going to take you backwards as we get started this morning. In fact, 20 years ago around this time was 1999. One of the most popular songs on the radio at the time was Prince's song, we're gonna party like it's 1999. Ba, 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 ba. Remember this song? Don't judge me. Don't look at me like that. You guys know this song. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so this song is on the radio. People are excited about the transition from 1999 to the year 2000. Up until right around this time, 20 years ago, it was around August, September, people started to flip out and lose their minds. Do you know why? Do you remember? Y2K. People were like, People stopped singing the 1999 song. Now they're singing the REM song. It's the end of the world as we... you know the song. Sing along with me. It's the end of the world as oh come on louder. It's the end of the <laughs> one more time. It's the <laughs> and I feel no. People didn't feel fine. They're like. And the reason why, if you're under 30 years old, let me tell you why Y2K was such a freak out moment for so many people throughout the world. There's this uh, this glitch, they called it the Y2K bug, and apparently the way that computers read the digits of the year of 1999, the computer only sees the 9-9 part of it. And so as we were getting closer to the end of the year, to New Year's Eve in 1999, the turn of the century, people were like, what happens when the computer goes from 9-9 to 0-0? What, what happens? Does it just like glitch? Does the computer stop working? Does it give the blue screen of death? Do you remember the blue screen of death on computers? <laughs> does, does it have the blue screen of death? What happens? Does everything just reset? And, and people started flipping out. 20 years ago, they started going to the gas stations. Right now, we have a hurricane bearing it down upon Florida. Hurricane Dorian. God be with the people in Florida throughout the East Coast in the next two days. This hurricane is coming. I just heard it was a, a category five. It's upgraded even just, just today to a cat five. And there's a picture of people at the gas station. There's people, they're, they're, they're taking out all the gas stations. There's fire or uh, police cars that are escorting the, the gas trucks to get there. There's just this gas run. It's not just the gas stations, it's the grocery stores. Everybody's going to the grocery stores to get the bottles of water and, and the rice and the beans and the non-perishables. But 20 years ago, it wasn't just Florida. It wasn't just a, a hurricane coming. It was the entire United States of America was flipping out, thinking the end of the world is going to take place. Now, let me just ask you, I'm just going to ask you an honest question. How many of you, by a raise of hands, actually prepared for Y2K? You bought bottles of water, you prepared an emergency kit. There's like four people who are honest and, and, and that they love Jesus, the rest of you are dirty liars. <laughs> So people started flipping out, they started preparing for Y2K, and I don't know if you remember where you were for the actual ball drop on New Year's Eve. I was in Albuquerque at my parents' house at the time, and I'm watching the ball drop in Times Square in New York City, because my thought was, if the, the end of the world is taking place, New York's going to end first, because we're on a two-hour delay. <laughs> So I got two hours to get my emergency kit prepared in case, you know, everything goes down in New York. So I'm watching the ball drop in Times Square Live. 10, nine, eight, 7, and I'm like, what's going to happen? It gets down three, two, one, and everybody gasps worldwide. <gasps> and you know what happened? Nothing. Everybody's flipping out over nothing, but you remember that story. Many of you remember it very clearly and distinctly. Why? Because people get nervous and anxious oftentimes for the idea of reset. Now, two weeks ago, we started this whole series. We started this brand new series about reset based on a theme verse in 2 Corinthians. Let's look at that verse. The theme verse is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anybody is new in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. In fact, many of you are rocking wristbands right now. If you've got a wristband that says old is gone, new is here, hold that up. Hold up your rock fist with your wristband. Yes, quite a few of you. Paul's saying if you follow after Jesus, the old is gone, the new is here. And for most people, that's exciting. For most people, that's incredible news. For most people, they're like, yes, I'm thankful, I'm grateful that the old is gone, the new is here, I'm a new creation in Christ. But not everybody is excited at the idea of a reset. For some people, just like in Y2K, some people, it makes them nervous, makes them fearful. For some people, it even makes them angry or mad. Let me explain to you what I mean. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, this is where... This is where we started two weeks ago and begin this, this series of Reset. Now, as we uh, jump back, as you're turning to Luke 15, let me uh, give you the recap in case you weren't here two weeks ago or in case you weren't paying attention two weeks ago. Let me fill you back in as far as where, where we started with this story. We started, started talking about the prodigal son. Now, the prodigal son is a story that Jesus begins to tell his disciples and other people who are listening in. It's about a father who has two sons. And the younger of the two sons come to, comes to dad one day and says, dad, you're as good as dead to me someday you're going to pass away and you're going to give me a portion of an inheritance. Rather than wait for someday, why don't you just give that to me now? Let me just go and live the white life that I want to live. Let me just go live how I want to live. And so the father, for some reason, for one reason or another, he agrees to that. Luke 15, 12, look at this. So the father divided his property between them. The father agreed to do what the son asked him to do. Now the son was rude. He was disrespectful. And he comes to his dad and says, I want you to give me part of my inheritance. Now if, if I'm the dad of that kid, I'm saying no. I'm not going to give you my inheritance early, but for whatever reason, this father decides to say, yes, okay, I'll give you your inheritance early. Now, I've thought about this verse. Why? Why would the father say yes to that demand from the son? The only thing I can think of is it must be because the father loves that son so much that the father is willing to let the son learn the hard way. Before I became a a lead pastor, I was a youth pastor in in Albuquerque in in California for about 10 years. And uh, and several of my students from California came here for a Labor Day weekend from San Diego to Farmington, New Mexico. They're on the front row. Vacation in Farmington, baby. (laughs) So... So as a youth pastor, oftentimes people, parents, would come up to me and they'd say, hey, I'm having, I'm having problems with my son, Andrew, will, will you help me? <laughs> one of their names is Andrew. Two of their names are Andrew, so they don't know which one. Uh, so parents would oftentimes come to me and be like, hey, my son's having problems, my daughter's having problems, will you go and sit down and have a conversation with him? And, and so I'd say, yeah, sure. Right, so I'd sit down with uh, said kid. Andrew or anybody else, and so I'd sit down with this student and be like, hey, what stupid things are you doing? And they'd tell me the stupid things that they were doing, and I'd be like, stop stop doing the stupid things that you're doing. And so then they'd stop, and then mom and dad would come back to me and be like, what did you say? What would you tell my kid? And I'd be like, well, here's what I t- said to your, your kid, and they'd be like, huh? The, they, they wouldn't be excited or thankful. They would be confused. They, they'd say, Matt, I've said the same thing a thousand times. How come they listen to you and not to me, to which I would reply every time, I don't know. I'm not really sure why, why they listen to me and not to you. The only thing that I know about students, especially teenagers, is that oftentimes teenagers think that their parents are crazy. Now, maybe not your teenagers, maybe your perfect parents and your teenagers are love and adore you and your perfect parents, but, but for a lot of families, their teenagers become rebellious and, and they think mom and dad are nuts. Mom and dad don't know anything. Mom and dad are dumb. They think that mom and dad are a few, a few fruit loops short of the bowl. You know, the, the wheel is spinning, but the hamster's dead. They think parents are stupid. That's how they look at parents. <laughs> so so even though you know sometimes parents have great advice, sometimes the, the younger children, the teenagers, the young adults are resistant to that for whatever reason. I just think it's a human phenomenon or a psychology that they think parents are Dumb. Which is why I think if your student is in middle school or high school, you should get them plugged into our student ministry because the student ministry, our youth pastor, our our leaders in the youth ministry, they could say the exact same things that you are and for some reason, sometimes that will click and resonate with kids when you say the same thing at home and for whatever reason it doesn't sink in. Which is why my wife and I are praying for our kids. That when they become teenagers, that there's other godly mentors and leaders that come into their lives and speak truth into them, love into them, because I know that our kids are likely going to look at my wife and think that she's dumb. Me, no, I'm good, but <laughs> she's on the front row, which is where I'm going to be sleeping tonight. Uh, no, sometimes, sometimes our kids, uh, they, they, uh, they think we're dumb. They think we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the solutions. Well, this, this father of the prodigal, he says, okay, kid, You think you know better than me? You think you know what's up? Fine. I'll give you your inheritance early, even though he knows, the father knows this is a mistake. So what happens in the story? This kid goes and takes his money, his share of the inheritance, and he goes off and he begins to squander it. The Bible says he begins to squander it and throw it away on wild living so he's spending it on this and this and this and this. And he winds up to the point where he has no money left. He's got nothing to show. So he goes to a local farmer. He says, Farmer, will you hire me to take care of your pigs? I'll just feed your pigs. So the farmer's like, Sure, I'll give you a job. So he starts working, getting paid to take care of the pigs. But he's so hungry that he begins to envy the food that the pigs are eating. So he, he begins to want the food, the slop, the pig slop. And we want to fill his belly with that. So he goes back to the farmer. Hey, can I have some of the pig slop? Because I'm hungry. And the farmer says, No, you're not going to have the pig slop. So at one point, this son of the father this prodigal son comes to his senses and after he comes to his senses at that point he decides I need to go back home my dad wasn't as dumb as I thought (laughs) he wasn't as stupid as I thought he was so I'm going to go back home but I can't just show back up and be like my bad (laughs) so I need to have a speech prepared I need to go back home, and here's what I'm going to tell my dad. Dad, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but please just hire me as one of your staff members. So he begins to repeat this, I'm sure, over and over and over as he begins to head back home. Dad, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just hire me as one of your staff members. Dad, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just hire me as one of your staff members. He gets closer and closer and closer. As he gets a little bit closer on the road going back home, his father sees him from a long distance away. His father sees his son coming back home. So he picks up and he starts running to meet the son where he's at. There's a whole other sermon in just that. But the son is met by his father. And the son goes into his rehearsed speech. Dad, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. At that point, he was going to say, will you hire me? But the, the dad was so excited. That he interrupts his son. And this is what the dad says. We, we went over this a couple weeks ago. Luke 15, chapter 22. The dad says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on my son. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Which, by the way, side note, sometimes when you read scripture, you read it like really boring. Some of you read scripture like, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. No wonder you don't read your Bible. It's boring when you read it like that. Read it like it's, it's supposed to be read. Quick, the father says, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Now, why are they celebrating? Why are they throwing a party? The dad's throwing a party because his son came home. What was dead is alive. What was lost is now found. He's celebrating because he's got his kid back. But the kid too, the son is also celebrating. Why? Because he didn't get what he deserved. Let me show you what the son deserved. Here's a list of things that he deserved. He deserved guilt, shame, perhaps judgment, embarrassment, maybe a lecture from dad, maybe even hate, maybe rejection. These are the things that were perhaps justified. This is what he's earned. But when he came home, that's not what he got. Let me show you what he got instead. He didn't get that list. He got this list. He got love, grace, acceptance, belonging. Got his family back. He got kindness. He got a reset. Now here's the interesting thing. He didn't deserve this. He deserved this. But he didn't get this. He got this. That's the interesting thing. And, and when it comes to you and I, it's easy as Christians, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, it's easy to give this list on the right side. It's easy to give that to people who have not hurt you. Isn't it? Oh, you've, you've hurt that other person's friend or feelings or you've wronged that other person or you're in an affair with this, this person over here. I can love you. Jesus forgives. You have grace. It's easy to give this list of people who have not hurt you but it's a whole different story. When somebody's hurt you, harmed you, sinned against you, wronged you, how hard is it to give this list on the right when it's, when it's you that's hurt? We go to this, don't we? We go to this other side. This is what you deserve. You hurt me? I I want you to feel the guilt. I want you to feel the weight of the shame. I want you to know what you've done. It's easier to give that list when somebody's wronged you, which is where we pick up the story this morning. Because everything we've talked about so far in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, we've already talked about that. But there's a whole second section to the story that we haven't even touched on yet. So we're going to continue the story for part two of this because it touches on this subject of forgiveness for other people. Luke 15, 25. Meanwhile, everybody say, Meanwhile. Meanwhile, the older brother, the prodigal is the younger brother. The older brother was out in the field. Now, why was he in the field? The reason he's out in the field is because that's where he was supposed to be. He has been obedient. The older brother has been doing his job the whole time. The younger brother's out squandering his money away, throwing his life away. The older brother has been obedient. He's been respectful. He's been doing what his dad has asked him to do the whole time. So he's out in the field doing what he's supposed to be doing the whole time while his little brother's throwing his life away. The rest of verse 25. When he came near the house, when the older brother comes near the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, doesn't it stink to not get invited to the party? You find out there's a party going on. You're like, how come I wasn't invited to the party? Older brother comes back and there's a party going on in his house he doesn't even know what the party is for. He hears music, he hears dancing. He's like, not only did I not get invited to the party, I have no idea what the party is even for. So he asks one of his servants, verse 26, he called one of the servants over and asked him, what's going on? The servant says, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now at this point, the older brother has a decision to make. Do I go into the house and join the party? Or do I stand on the outside and be bitter. Do I join the celebration and, and and blow up some helium boom balloons? Do I join in the feast? Do I have some of this fat and calf? Do I do I go pat the brother on the back? Do I give him a bear hug? Or, or do I stay outside and say, you know what? That's not what he deserves. He doesn't deserve a celebration. He doesn't deserve a party. This isn't what he deserves. I've been out in the fields this whole time. While he comes back, he's getting a celebration. He has a decision to make. Do I go in and celebrate or do I stand on the outside and become bitter? Well, let's see what happens. Let's see what he does. In the very next verse, here's what we see uh, in Luke 15, 28. The older brother became what? Happy, you think? Thankful? Grateful? Here's what it says. The older brother became angry. Now, sometimes we can't control what makes us angry. But the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. So that implies that we have control over our actions when we are angry. He became angry. Perhaps he couldn't control that he was getting angry, the emotions and the feelings from that. But he could control, do I I go in? I'm angry. I'm I'm upset. But but I could still go love him. I can embrace him. I can hug him. Or I can stay on the outside. But it says he refused to go in. In his anger, he's getting more bitter and more resentful to this brother who came home. This brother who squandered everything away. This brother that gave away his inheritance, that spent it on wild living. He doesn't even want to go inside. He doesn't even want to see him. He doesn't even want to smell him. He wants nothing to do with his brother. I'm not even going to go inside for the party. I won't even look at him because he's that bitter and that resentful. Friends, sometimes you and I will have an opportunity. To choose to be grateful for somebody like the prodigal son or to be hateful towards that person. And my challenge to you if you're taking notes, you can write this down choose to be grateful, not hateful. Choose to be grateful, not hateful. The brother of the prodigal is choosing to be hateful, won't even go inside. The father of the prodigal is choosing to be grateful. The, The father could have been bitter, he could have been resentful, he was the one that gave the money that got thrown away. So he could have been upset, but instead he chose to be grateful instead of hateful. So the father leaves the party, goes outside to the older brother, and tries to convince the older brother, hey, you too should be grateful. I'm grateful. I could be bitter. I could be upset. I could be hateful. But I'm choosing gratitude instead. So the dad goes outside, talks to the older brother. Here's what happens, verse 28. So the father went out and pleaded with the older brother. But the older brother answered his father, he says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours has squandered your property and prostitutes comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him? Look at the terminology he uses here. This son of yours. He doesn't even identify of saying this brother of mine. He's saying the son of yours. A couple weeks ago, we had guests in our home, and, and our four-year-old son, Noah, he took off all of his clothes and starts running around naked. My wife looks at me. She's like, look at that son of yours. And I was like, no, no, no. Look at the son of yours. <laughs> Neither one of us wants that responsibility. Sorry, guys. This doesn't happen all the time, not 24-7, just sometimes. The brother says, this son of yours, Dad. He's come, you kill a fattened calf for him after he's throwing everything away. I've been obedient. This son of yours has never been obedient. He's upset, he's bitter, and it's oozing out. But the dad tries to convince him, hey, you should be grateful, not hateful. So here's what the dad says, verse 31. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, he brings him back. He's your brother, he's your family. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He's trying to encourage him. You too should be grateful, not hateful. You shouldn't be spiteful. Yes, we can be that. We could choose that, but we could also choose to be thankful and glad that he's come back home. So he's trying to win him over, but here's the bummer of the story. The bummer of this story is the fact that this is where the story ends. What we don't have is a continuation to know what the older brother did after this point. Wouldn't it be nice to know, like, dad comes out and says, hey, come on, man, you should go back in. We should be grateful, not hateful. We shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't treat your brother. He was dead. He's alive. He's, he's, he's back. He, what was once was gone. The old is gone. The new is here. We should, we should be thankful for that. That's why we're celebrating. We had to celebrate. It would be nice to know, what did the older brother do after that point? Did he go inside and be like, hey, you know what, dad? You're right. Let's let's go in there. I I was upset at first, but now that I've heard you dad, I feel convicted. I feel challenged. I want to go inside. Let's celebrate. I'm going to give my brother a hug. Or did he continue to say, "You know what? No. That son of yours is dead to me. I never want to see him. I never want to have anything to do with him. In fact, dad, give me my share of the inheritance cuz I too and I'm going to go split. I'm done with this family." We don't know how the older brother responded. Here's what we do know. What we do know is that when the prodigal came home, when he came to his senses and returned back to his family, that was worth celebrating. And, and I say this because oftentimes that's not our natural response when we have been the ones hurt, when we're the ones wronged, when we're the ones that have been sinned against. And somebody comes back, oftentimes we're like, oh, I'll forgive you when? you feel the weight of your consequences. When you feel the guilt, when you feel the shame, when you feel the public humiliation, when you feel the embarrassment, once you've gone through enough torment, eh, maybe then I'll forgive you. But oftentimes, we're not the ones celebrating that they even came back in the first place. Perhaps what we need to do is reset the way that we look at that person. Here's, here's how Jesus says that we should be known and, and be recognized to other people. John 13, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, oftentimes, Christians pervert this verse, don't we? We twist it. We distort it. We want to make the point. You've hurt me. I'm holier than you. I'm a better Christian than you. So I want you to know that I'm better than you because I'm going to guilt you. I'm going to put you in your place. I'm going to make you feel the weight of your consequences, your decisions. I know it says to love somebody, but, but we're going to love you in truth. We're going to love you so you know what you've done wrong. I want you to experience the weight and the pain that you've caused to me. We twist this sometimes. We're called to love people. We're called to be known by our love, not based on our guilt, our humiliation, our shame, our rejection. Somebody wrongs you, you're like, oh, I'm gonna give them the silent treatment. I'm not gonna talk to them for a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months, a couple decades. They'll know they hurt me. They'll know they've done wrong. We're called to love. We're not called to guilt. We're not called to shame. And I think the reason why we're called to love is because that's what changes people's minds. Love is what leads to life change. It's not guilt, it's not shame. It's not humiliation. Love changes people. Love impacts people. Love gets a hold of people, which is why Paul told the, told the church of, in, Rome, in Romans 2, 1 and uh, 4, he says, You, therefore, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on somebody else, for at whatever point you judge one another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You're judging other people, but you're guilty too. Throw the first stone You have your own sins. You have your own things you've done wrong. You're going to judge other people, but be careful because you too are going to be judged. Verse 4, Paul says to the church of Rome, he says, Do you you show contempt for the riches of kindness, of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul's saying it's God's kindness, not guilt, not shame, not, not the pressure of other people. It's kindness that leads people to repentance. It's forbearance. It's patience. It's love that changes people. I don't know why we get this in our minds that, well, if I guilt you, if I get you back, if I get revenge, if I'm isolating you, if, I, if I'm rejecting you, somehow that's going to win somebody over? That doesn't win anybody over. It's kindness that leads people to repentance. It's love that brings people back to God. I don't understand how oftentimes we get it so wrong as Christians. I do have an idea of where it comes from because there's a section of Scripture that Jesus talks about, and it's in Matthew 18. And even me just saying Matthew 18, many of you are like, oh, I know Matthew 18. Yeah, I've Matthew 18 people before. Because <laughs> it's where Jesus talks about how do we confront somebody who has sinned against us. But even though this is Jesus' words in, in red letters in the Bible, sometimes people twist it and they, I think they misunderstand it. They take it out of context. So, so let's dive into Matthew 18 really quickly to, to see how we actually confront somebody who is sinning. Matthew 18, 15. This is what Jesus says. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. And just between the two of you. And why do you think Jesus says just between the two of you? I think the reason why is because that communicates respect. If you go out and you publicly broadcast, if you, if you broadcast it on social media, if you tell all your friends, hey, this person's wronged me, this person's done something against me, it, it's, it's out there public. But, but here, just between the two of you, this is communicating Kindness. It's communicating respect to that other person. So he's saying, just the two of you, perhaps you can help them come to their senses as far as how they've wronged you. That's the goal. In fact, let's look at the other part of this verse, verse 15. It says that the, if they listen to you, you have won them over. That is the purpose. That is the goal. The goal is to not guilt them or feel the weight of their, their the pain. It's to win them over. Sometimes we have the wrong intentionality, the wrong heart as far as why we go after them. But if they listen to you, maybe you've won them over. You got them back. you've, You've convinced them to come to their senses. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. So Jesus continues on. He says, if it doesn't, verse 16, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So that's the second phase. And if that doesn't work, verse 17, he says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now here's where I think Christians start to get off the rails a little bit. Because I've literally seen pastors bring people up onto the stage in front of an entire congregation and say, tell them what you did. Tell them about your affair. Whew! Public humiliation? Is that really what Jesus means by this? You've got to remember, in the original Greek language that, that Jesus spoke in, this word church is ekklesia, which means a group. Jesus is saying, bring that person in front of a group of people. In my opinion, Jesus is the inventor of the intervention. You ever seen that show, Intervention? Interventions, a TV show where people that are addicted to meth or alcohol or some sort of drug or whatever, they get an intervention. And in an intervention, maybe you've seen the show, maybe you've participated in an intervention, maybe you've been the recipient of an inter- intervention. Here's what the intervention looks like. Oftentimes the intervention is a group of people, a group of people that come together, For one person who's doing something they shouldn't be doing, and they sit down, and oftentimes they read letters. Not only are you harming yourself, but you're harming me. And it's one after another person that goes around and shares with this person. But here's what you don't see in interventions. You don't see a huge mass group of people that don't know that person. Here's what you do see in the intervention. You see people who are the closest friends and family members of the person who needs to hear that. And when it's shared, it's shared in love. That's what Jesus is communicating. When somebody sins you, when somebody wrongs, go one-on-one, try to win them back over, try to help them come to their senses. If that doesn't work, take two or three people. If that doesn't work, take a group, take an ecclesia, take a portion of the church to go and meet with that person. If that still doesn't work, then he says this in verse 16. Jesus says, if they refuse to listen, even to the church, to the group of people, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now here, friends, is where Christians go off the rails. They're like, oh, I talked to that person once, I talked to him twice, I brought a group of people to him, and and they still didn't listen, so to hell with them. They're dead to me, I'm never going to see them. I get to treat them like a pagan, I get to treat them, it's Christians gone wild, like it's nuts. People just go crazy at this part. And, And in my opinion, I think those Christians have a misunderstanding of what Jesus was trying to communicate. Because if we really look at... At this verse, it says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. For the people who, who feel like they have carte blanche authority and freedom just to treat people however they want to, for those people, I would ask them the question, how did Jesus treat the pagans and the tax collectors? What did they do? How did, how did Jesus respond to them? And I have an answer for you from Scripture. Let's look at how Jesus treated pagans and tax collectors. Mark chapter 2, verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors, those teachers of the law asked the disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Can't you just sense the judgment in that? Why is he eating with them? What does he have anything to do with those people? Why is Jesus eating with such sinful, despicable people? Why is he doing it? And little did they know, Jesus overheard. Them. So rather than wait for the disciples to answer, Jesus overhears this. And so he answers for them. He kind of butts himself in this conversation, Mark two seventeen, Jesus said to them, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Which goes back to the question I just asked a moment ago. How did Jesus treat the pagans, the sinners, the tax collectors? How did he treat them? He loved them. He didn't just say, hey, you're dead to me. I'm never going to talk to you again. I'm going to isolate you again. You have nothing to do with me. I'm not going to even look at you anymore. I'm not going to communicate. I'm not going to text message you. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, I'm coming to eat with you. I'm coming to hang out with you. I'm coming to hug you. I'm coming to love you. That's how Jesus treats the pagans and the tax collectors. Friends, Matthew 18 does not give us authority or permission to treat people poorly in Jesus' name. It does not do that. Matthew 18 challenges us to love people in their sin. Matthew 18 challenges us to love people despite their sin. Matthew 18 challenges us to love people through their sin. We don't have permission to treat people poorly. Jesus loves people, period regardless of whether they've sinned, regardless of whether they've asked for forgiveness. And that, my friends, is the reset that the older brother of the prodigal needed to understand. He says, I'm not even going to the party. I'm not going to say hello to my brother. I'm not going to hug him. I'm not going to celebrate. I'm not going to join this party. I'm going to stay out here. I'm going to refuse to go in. And that, that son of yours is dead to me. And Jesus is making the point. Some of us need to treat other people a little bit more like the father of the prodigal instead of like the brother of the prodigal. Perhaps that's the reset some of us need. Perhaps the reset some of us need is to give other people less guilt, more love. Perhaps the reset that some of us need is less shame and giving more people, people more love. Giving them less judgment, more what? Less embarrassment, more what? Less lectures, more what? Less rejection, more? Less hate, more? See, sometimes the reset that we need is the same reset that the older brother, the prodigal needed. To look at his brother like he's his brother. To look at him with less guilt, less shame, less judgment, less embarrassment, less lectures, less rejection, less hate. I just need to love this guy. Maybe the reset that we need is the same reset that the older brother needed. So it leads me to this question. Who's the prodigal in your life? Maybe it's a son, maybe it's a daughter, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a coworker. maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a neighbor. There's somebody that's sinned against you, somebody that's wronged you, and you're like, oh, I want nothing to do with that person. I'm going to I'm going them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell these people over here what that person's done to me. But I ain't going to go talk to that person. I'm not going to associate with that person. I've talked to them once. I've talked to them twice. Strike three. They're out. I'm done. I'm going to treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Don't forget how Jesus treated the pagans and the tax collectors. He loved them. He was intentional about loving them. Perhaps the reset that we need is to look at other people the way that Jesus looks at you. Let that sink in for a second. Perhaps the reset that you need is to look at other people the way that Jesus looks at you, which begs the question, well, how does Jesus look at me? How does Jesus look at you? Thankfully, Paul answers that in Romans, Romans chapter 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ loved us. He loved us in our sin, through our sin, despite of our sin. While we were still sinners, while we haven't even asked for forgiveness yet, he chose to give up his life in the greatest act of love that he possibly could have. Perhaps we need to reset the way that we look at other people to how Jesus looks at us. This morning, we're going to wrap up our time together by taking communion. And here at Pinion Hills, we, we take communion this, the first Sunday of every month. And communion, uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, there's six different stations for communion. So just a moment, you can come forward and you can exit to your right and come forward and and grab the elements. And the elements, the cracker represents Jesus' body that was broken for you. The juice represents his blood that was shed for you. But communion this morning is going to be a, a little bit different because when you come to the tables, you notice that there's not just crackers and juice, there's also pencils and a piece of paper. So I'm going to encourage you, come forward, and when you take the elements, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, you don't have to come forward at all, because that doesn't make sense to remember what Jesus has done for you if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, come forward, grab the elements. But I would encourage you, with your left hand, grab a cracker and grab juice, and with your right hand, grab a pencil and a piece of paper. And here's what I want you to do with that piece of paper. I want you to go back to your chair, and before you take the cracker and the juice in remembrance of what Jesus has done for you, I want you to ask yourself the question, is there anybody I need to be more Christ-like to in my life? and if there is if there's somebody that you need to reset the way that you look at them to to how Jesus looks at you if there's somebody that you haven't forgiven somebody you're being resentful towards somebody you're not forgiving somebody that's wronged you whether they've asked for forgiveness or not if you know deep in your heart if you feel the conviction of the holy spirit right now i have been resistant to talking to that person associating with that person being known that i have any sort of connection with that person if there's anything that you know any person that you know that you need to reset the way that you look at them here's what i'm going to challenge you to do on that little piece of paper I want you to write down their name or perhaps their initials. And when you leave here in a moment, uh, you can still take the communion elements and you can take the cracker and the juice as the band is singing the song in remembrance of what Jesus has done for you. Right after that, I'm going to come out and I'm going to pray over us and I'm going to dismiss you. But as you, as you get dismissed this morning, I want you to take that piece of paper and when you leave here in the plaza, there's, there's a reset wall. Two weeks ago, it had donuts on it. Last week, it had wristbands on it. This week, it has names on it. Names of people that need a fresh start names of people that don't deserve grace, they don't deserve a clean slate, they don't deserve a fresh start, they don't deserve a reset those are people that perhaps have wronged other people they've sinned against other people but the reset today that we're talking about is how you look at those types of people how you look at that person in your life will you reset the way that you look at them to be how Jesus looks at you to choose to give them love not guilt Not shame, not resentment, not isolation, not the silent treatment. Will you choose to give them love? And if that is true for you, I want you to write their name, write their initials, whatever you want, whatever you're comfortable with. And when you leave here, I want it to be a symbolic, bold statement that you are choosing to reset how you look at them to how Jesus looks at you. How does Jesus look at you? While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. So when you're ready, come forward. Grab the elements, grab a pencil, grab a piece of paper, and write the name of the person that you need to reset towards as we sing this song, as we enter into a time of worship this morning.